Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. When someone says that the economy is doing great or not doing too well, that should not be the end of it. Which economy are they talking about? The tangible or the intangible? Hmm, you might be saying, what does he mean? My guest today is going to talk about how he and his co-author think that we should fix the intangible economy. I bet you didn't know that there is an intangible economy and that it might need fixing. So here today with me is Stephen Westlake, Westlake, who, along with his co-author, Jonathan Haskell, wrote Restarting the Future, Fix the Intangible Economy. Stephen Westlake is chief executive of the Royal Statistical Society. I am happy to welcome Stephen Westlake to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Stephen. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. You start off saying that the 20th century ended in a flurry of optimism, but the reality has proven very different. Over the past 20 years, the performance of advanced economies has been a study in disappointment. And you give five reasons why. Stagnation, inequality, dysfunctional competition, fragility, and inauthenticity. Would you like to expand on that? Sure. I think it's something that almost everyone who thinks about the way society is going and how the economy is performing on some level knows that somehow the kind of dreams that we had, particularly in the kind of optimistic days in the late 90s, have not quite panned out the way we thought they would. We know that from a pure economic point of view, the economy's growth has slowed down. So the US, other major economies have not become more prosperous as fast as we thought they would. We know that inequality, the gaps between the richest and the poorest in society, has grown kind of faster than anyone thought they would as well. But at the same time, there are some more almost um, almost emotional things that feel, feel wrong with the economy. There is, we describe this as inauthenticity, a kind of concern among many people that things are fake. Once upon a time in the economy, people made real things. They made physical products with their hands, and now people just kind of pass paper around, pass emails around. And a lot of people feel there's something kind of culturally wrong with that, something that's almost morally wrong. Similarly, a feeling when we look at some of the big crises that have been affecting our world, whether that is the big challenges of COVID-19 or whether that is the kind of looming challenges of potentially climate change. Although society feels kind of rich and prosperous, that actually there's a fragility to it, that we are at the mercy of these big seismic, almost existential changes. And um, there's also a kind of feeling that there is something wrong with what economists often think of as the lifeblood of the market economy with competition. Um, a lot of people, and you know, you're in Northern California, a lot of people look at these big tech platforms and say, well, you know, these guys look like monopolists. Is this a return to the kind of the old world that we saw at the beginning of the, 19, uh, the, beginning of the 20th century with, with trust? But at the same time as these um, at the same time as there's this worry that businesses aren't competing, if you think about our everyday lives as people in the economy, as workers, whether you're working in an Amazon depot or whether you're a kind of a glamorous top executive, there's a sense in which working life feels more frenetic than ever. So there's a real paradox in competition between potentially diminishing competition among these kind of big companies, but a working life that feels more more frantic. And the book that we've written is an attempt to try and say, well, there's all this stuff that we're worried about. What might be causing it? Okay, so you've laid things out, but 
when you wrote your book or when you researched your book, things were slightly different than they are now because uh, when you started, I don't even think that COVID had been an issue during the writing of the book or the research. It did. And now uh, we've seen the effects and people are suffering from uh, COVID fatigue, among other things. Uh, there's been a lot of home work because Zoom like this allows them to do that. Uh, and in the service industries, the lower level paid people are getting disgusted and some of them are leaving the workplace, as are people that are close to retirement age. So we're losing a lot of people and that's therefore pushing up wages in some areas. Uh, so things are changing. So here's my question. If you had written the book today, would any of your supposition than they were when you wrote the book? It's a really good question. And I think one of the things that um, one of the things that is particularly kind of troubling about these things going wrong with the economy is most of them seem pretty resistant to even big changes, things like COVID-19. As you say, we're seeing a period of inflation. We're seeing a period of the so-called great resignation where people are quitting jobs that they don't think are good jobs or don't pay well. But the underlying dynamic of high inequality, this kind of gap between the richest and the poorest, is still there, even as some wages are rising a little bit. And I think there's some interesting aspects that we can talk about, about how the response to COVID, how, you know, we have seen a great deal of home working, but the best of working in person, that there are some benefits that you can only really get when you work together in one place or you have meetings with people or exchange, have social interaction. In some sense, we've realized that, you know, that is, that is still, that is, that is still important, that face-to-face -face interaction. People used to talk about the death of distance, but the death of distance has not happened. Even COVID, even COVID hasn't killed it. It's hard to, uh, work on team building if you're all separated and on a screen rather than person at the at the coffee maker uh, chit-chatting about various things and come becoming closer to that person or those people than you are if you're online. You know I think that's so true and it's something I've noticed as a chief executive that um, working with people online you can have lots of good interactions with people you can work very effectively with people online but there are some conversations, whether you're sort of suggesting something, whether you're trying to understand what someone really feels about something, that are just so much easier to have if you're interacting with someone in person over the course of the day. You're having, as you say, informal interactions as well as kind of this is our scheduled meeting at 10 a.m. It's um, it's you know, we've faced we've we've kind of learned from not having it that face to face still matters. And I wonder whether there isn't some underlying anxiety about two uh, possible perils that are facing us. Possible, I say. One is, of course, with the war in Ukraine and Putin threatening possible use of nuclear weapons. And I think both in Great Britain and the United States and other parts of the world, there is tension between two competing interests, democracy or autocracy. And I think, I think that's, that's worrying uh, people. I think that's very true. And um, but interestingly, there's a there's a there is a very there's a very interesting lesson that I think we can learn when we look back at the kind of history of innovation and technology in the kind of the latter part of the 20th century and to some extent now. And it's something that we 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 talk about in the book. 
if you look at countries, especially small countries that have been especially innovative, and you can measure this, how much their government and businesses spend on research and development, how many tech companies they produce, how many scientists they produce. We see something really interesting. The disproportionate number of these countries that do really well at innovation are small countries, and they're small countries with a big, angry neighbor that they feel threatened by. So I'll give you some examples. Um, this may not be, this may not have cut through in California, but one thing we're really aware of in Europe is that two real tech leadership countries are Estonia and Finland. And Estonia and Finland, they churn out, churn out lots of startups. They do great technology work. They gave birth to angry birds, among other things. Um, and they've got something in common. And that's something in common is they've got a big angry neighbor in form of Russia that they have a lot of uh, past history with. And one of the things that we notice is that that, um, that, um, you know, in the book, we talk about the importance of investing in the kind of ideas that underpin the intangible economy. That takes political will as well as business acumen. There is a lot that government needs to do in terms of funding science alongside dynamic entrepreneurs. And one of the ways to make that easier, so one of the ways that that can happen, one of the ways to reduce the political infighting that stops that is if you have a big common enemy and you know you can't kind of fall asleep. So you see that in Estonia, you see that with Finland another company that has an ama has amazing tech companies and you see that to some extent in singapore which has a long history of being surrounded by countries that didn't used to be too friendly to it so there's something about threat that you know we'd obviously all rather live a life with the fear of nuclear war is something we should all take very seriously but there can also be a there can also be something about it that galvanizes us in our response and so long as we kind of make sure we assiduously seek peace as well being prepared for to resist to, to resist aggression can seems to have some good effects both economically and socially too. Let's talk about government-sponsored research for a bit. Uh, it's been declining here in the United States over a number of years. It used to be four to five percent of GDP, and today it's around two percent. In addition, large big pharma, large companies, uh, used to have wonderful laboratories that developed all kinds of new medications. Today, it's a lot easier for them to find one of these small entrepreneurial companies who have made a good discovery and buy that company rather than do their own research. So that kind of stifles innovation to an extent. Uh, what do you say about that? I think there's two things going on here. I think the first thing is one of the things we've learned about these ideas, what we call intangible capital that you have to invest in. Um, there's a really important role that business has to play in making those investments. But because a business can never capture all the value of their ideas, or it can't rely on capturing all the values of their ideas, if only business invests in things like research and development, you'll get less than you would ideally like in society. So there is always a role for government in funding things like basic science, things like research and development. You know, we see that in terms of the incredible role that the U.S. government played in the development of the semiconductor in the kind of early history of space area of businesses. So I think the first thing is it's a really important mission for governments around the world to say, how can we build political movement to make sure that we keep on investing in these kind of these 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 aspects of R&D to make it work? But it's not just the quantity of investment that matters, it's the quality as well. And there, I think there's a story to tell about what's been happening in pharma. 
because you're absolutely right that there is a kind of it, it is it is it is bad that pharma companies often no longer maintain R&D labs. And, you know, we're very sad to see the decline in other sectors of things like Bell Labs that produce some of these kind of amazing breakthroughs in basic science and the telecommunications industry. But one of the advantages of the model that you describe now, where companies go and buy startups that do R&D, is that very often that means that they focus on really breakthrough innovations. The incentives for a startup founder and the people who work in a startup lab are potentially much sharper. And I think one of the big challenges for, you know, for companies and for the world and for governments now is to say, how can we get both? How can we get a lot of quantity of R&D, but also have sharp incentives so that we are doing the most impactful things we can with that money? Okay. So one of the things that you stress in your book is the difference between quality and quantity and better. And then some of the other things we've just been discussing, uh, I think that underlying it all is a word that, of course, is important to me, and that's politics plays a big role. We have the idealistic view, the aspirational view of what we would like to achieve. And then we have these middling backbenchers, whether it be in Great Britain or in the United States, who are only interested in furthering the interests of their large donor uh, base that have differing views and are more interested in their own self-interest than they are in the masses interest. What do you do with that? I think the biggest challenge, if you want to improve institutions, if you want to improve policy, as you say, the biggest challenge is setting the right political incentives. And I guess this is an area where R&D is a good example. If you want a lot of R&D, you need to make it in the in, in the interests of politicians. And as you say, politicians have always got kind of two things going on. On the one hand, most politicians, in my experience, call me naive, but they're kind of public spirited. You know, you don't go into politics if you don't on some level want to make your country a better place, whatever value of better place you define that is. But as you say, you've got to keep the votes coming in. You've got to keep donor money coming in. You've got constituencies that you care about. So you have a bunch of other incentives as well. The, the, the key things here is how do you align those two incentives? And R&D is a really interesting example. If you just say that R&D is about spending money on national labs on a class of scientists who might have nothing to do with the people who are ultimately voting for you and putting you in power, then you're creating a tension. You're making it really hard for politicians to do the right thing because they've got to get elected at the next election. But if you can if you can align those incentives, if you can come up with ways of showing that our aren't benefits to people, if you can demonstrate that it generates good jobs, if you can show that that will generate not just jobs for scientists, but jobs for people who come and work in the companies that are started, people who will come and work as plumbers or janitors or teachers working in the economic growth that's generated by those companies, then it becomes a much easier sell. And then you can make the kind of uh, the, 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 the angel on the shoulder of the politician and the devil on the shoulder, you can kind of make them point in the same direction. Well, I'm I'm a little more cynical than you are. Uh, I think there is too much self-interest uh, on the part of politicians and why they go into politics is not necessarily uh, to a better humanity. If you take a look, I can't remember any former member of Congress that has had to have a collection taken up for him because he is so poor. 
When you take a look at sports figures and actors and actresses who made millions of dollars in the past, uh, then you find that suddenly they're so destitute that they have to have fundraisers. Not so with former politicians. They go in there to feather their own nest. In fact, here in the United States, Congress have been accused of self-interest in finding out inside information and trading stocks on that information. That's not for the people. That's for themselves. So I'm more cynical than you are about politics. But on the other hand, uh, when you talk about uh, the inequality, that's been going on for 40 years. 40 years, the uh, wage, at least I'm talking here in the United States, wages have not increased very much. But of course, the wealthy, the one or one tenth of one percent have become extremely wealthy. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, the way the tax scheme has been written, then we have the carried interest. You know what that is, right? Yeah. I, I mean, Private people day, yeah. taking huge amounts of money for no risk when that's not what the uh, idea was in the beginning. And yet the the minimum wage here in the United States, the federal minimum wage is only $7.25. That's why this move on the coasts to raise. And so how can you support a family at $290 a week. You can't do it. But on the coasts, New York area, uh, the West Coast, there is a move and it has been done to raise the wage, minimum wage to $15 an hour. And here in Northern California, you go into a, a, a McDonald's, a Starbucks, or there's, a, you must know of In-N-Out Burger. Yeah. They're looking to pay people to start at $17, $18 an hour because they can't get. And if you look at any business, almost any business, especially in healthcare, you find that they're underemployed because they can't attract enough people to come. So that this is what I was asking you about before. Do you see a long-term trend going on here where uh, businesses are going to have to give more of their profits to the stockholders and to their executives well i think that this is uh, you know this is going to be one of the one of the things that this shift towards intangible capital called businesses no longer investing mostly in machines but investing in ideas. this inevitably pushes up inequality as a you know inequality before tax it means that the people who kind of have people positions of power it creates more opportunity said for manipulating the rules in their own interest because rules become more important um and you know you see that in things like the world of ip and copyright and patents um it also means that the people who can manage to manipulate who are good at bringing together r&d ideas will command excessive compensation or command higher compensation than than than, than previously you can decide yourself whether it's excessive or not and I think that comes back to what you're saying, that, OK, if you're going to see growing inequality, that then raises a political question, which is what do you do about it? Um, I think one thing the you know, one one thing you can do about it is you can raise minimum wages. Another thing is you can put in place projects like universal basic income, which is kind of being looked at. And to do either of those things, you need to tax more. And that might be eliminating loopholes like carried interest loophole where those loopholes have been created really to further special interests or it might involve increasing taxes more generally or you know this is politics you can take a different approach and say inequality is increasing but i don't mind inequality but as you say 
at some point, people are going to say, well, I'm not going to turn up to work at my shift if you're only paying me this much. So market forces play a role there as well. But I think if you're in politics, you've got to reckon with this rising inequality and you've got to you've got to answer for yourself morally. What do I want to do about it? Well, that's kind of a strange thing, because you could see what's going on here in the politics of the United States. Uh, Not much is getting done overall for the people Uh, because of the uh, the division in Congress, especially in the Senate, where it's 50 50 and only uh, Kamala Harris is there to make the 51st vote if all Democrats vote in unison. In the House, uh, there's a little difference. But the big thing will happen this November. Will uh, the Republicans, and they have so much hubris right now, oh, they've got a lock on uh, taking over both houses and they're going to start all kinds of investigations on Democrats. So where is something being done for the people? But I think that hubris is going to be their downfall. Uh, But yet, And let's look at something else. Uh, Joe Biden has very low approval ratings. There is high inflation uh, that is going on now. Uh, There is also high uh, GDP development. Uh, Right now, we've had the largest growth in the United States in 40 or so years. We also have the highest inflation in that many years. Uh, I think that and, and I'm asking you to respond to this. Do you believe that inflation will continue at this high level or will it start to come down at some point? At least for the immediate future, inflation looks pretty locked into me. I'm not an inflation expert, but I look at the underlying factors. That is um, commodities prices, um, energy prices affected by Ukraine and kind of the underlying effects of tight labor COVID-19. I mean, all of those things seem to point to inflation sticking around for quite a while. And certainly you can see some central banks um, responding to that by kind of gradually beginning to to, 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 to increase interest rates. Um, I'd be wary of betting. And, you know, if I was if, if I was uh, if I was able to predict these things, I would be working in a hedge fund rather than writing about it. But <laughs> it looks to me like it's a fairly it seems it'll pretty likely that this is going to continue for the foreseeable future. Well, if Powell just raised uh, interest rates for the first time in a number of years, and he said that more increases will come, that will sort of uh, slow down inflation to some degree. And if the economy continues to grow, uh, that's a good thing. Right now, we have the lowest unemployment rate in many, many years. It's uh, four or less. Uh, That's a good thing. But yet the perception when they do polling is that the economy is lousy. He hated this inflation at the pump and that he's not doing a good job. And yet, and yet, he has gathered together a hundred and some bodies to uh, pass a resolution in the UN condemning Putin for his invasion of uh, Ukraine. Now, No one since George H.W. Bush in the first Gulf War has been able to be that diplomatic and that much of a world leader to do that. And yet he's not getting any credit. So there are these intangibles, you know, it's not just in the economy. There are intangibles in everything, especially in politics. That's true. And stories really matter, don't they? I mean, we you know, we are human beings. We're we're natural storytellers. 
So the stories that we tell about how Biden is doing, about how the economy is doing, those do come to influence how people think about reality. And I agree with you. I think, you know, if you look at the response to if you told someone in mid-February that the response to Putin had been so strong and it had been so, um, you know, I'm not not even talking about the heroic performance of the Ukrainians themselves, but I'm just talking here about the global community coming together and the leadership that seems to me the U.S. has showed over that. I mean, that is, people would have said you were a kind of crazy optimist if you'd said this back in um, back in February. And yet, this is what's happened. I think, you know, feels to me like Biden has done a great job there. Uh, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for anyone who is just tuning in. This is Politics, a Love Story. My guest today is Stian Westlake. He and his uh, co-author wrote Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. So you, the intangible economy, why don't we go back to the beginning here and have you explain what you think the intangible economy is compared to the tangible economy? This really is about a big change that's happened in the economy of the United States and other countries over the last 40 or so years. So once upon a time, back in the day, the spent their money on to generate future profits were mostly physical assets, physical capital, things you can touch or feel, machines, vehicles, buildings, increasingly computer hardware, but things that you can kind of, things that you can tap noise. And one of the big changes that's been happening over the last 40 years is what businesses invest in has changed. And now the average dollar of business investment goes on something that you can't touch or feel, what economists would call intangible assets. And examples of that are things like research and development, coming up with a new scientific idea, design, designing new products, new product development, training, training your staff and skills to make them more productive. Things like building supply chains, if you that people buy clothes from. Those are all about very finely balanced supply chains that give these companies a competitive advantage. Or even things like artistic originals. You know, we've just seen the, the recently the Oscars. You know, this is all about the business of um, creating artistic originals and monetizing them in a way that wasn't possible before. And what we argue is that an economy where most capital is intangible behaves really differently from an economy where, the, where, where most things are tangible and the rules of the economy change. Okay, you point out um, four ways that intangible assets tend to differ from tangible assets. Uh, intangible assets are often highly scalable. An asset like an algorithm can be used across a very large business. Intangibles have spillovers. A business investing, say, in R&D cannot be sure it will be the only entity to benefit from its investment. Intangibles are sunk costs, are often not worth much to creditors if a business fails. And four, intangibles have synergies. They are often massively more valuable when combined with other intangibles. Like E.K., for example, J.K. Rowling, she wrote her books, they were made into movies, and there's merchandise. And Star Wars could be a similar uh, example. In fact, just a small story. When George Lucas was peddling his Star Wars movie, he went to several studios and they turned him down. And then he went to, uh, I think it was Universal. And they were willing to take a chance. And he said, well, what about the after film merchandise? They said, they didn't even think it was going to be a successful film. So they said, nah, you can have that. 
he's made more billions from his merchandise than he did from his movies. But that is an example of someone who was long intangible capital, who kind of saw it ahead of other people. Yes. So these are your four examples of how intangibles differ. And uh, this is the, uh, the thing that um, how we're going to restart the future using the intangible economy as opposed to the tangible economy. But I don't know if it's going to make much difference. Uh, there was just announced a, a new uh, chip factory here in the United States. We have offshored many of our production facilities. Would this, you think, be restarting manufacturing here in the United States? So this is a great example of something that is something of, of to me of the intangible economy. So we think of a chip factory and we think, well, a factory, that's kind of tangible capital, isn't it? There are these kind of machines and there are buildings. But it's really interesting if you look at a successful chip factory, and obviously Taiwan is the kind of world leading producer of semiconductors. The other kind of one is the various Intel factories. And if you look at what's going on, and if you look at why it's been so hard for China to copy them and to come up with its own semiconductors, it's because it's not actually a business fundamentally of buying machines and just putting them in a room and getting people to, to, to flick a switch. Most of what's going on is incredibly detailed knowledge in the minds of people working in these factories. Very hard to replicate unless you forcibly move a thousand people from, 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 from Taiwan. Um, there's a bunch of processes, very detailed, iterative processes. And if you get any one of these 99 processes wrong, your, 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 your business doesn't work. You can't produce chips effectively. A set of constantly updated relationships with your customers, your producers, and the vendors of all the tools that you need to run one of these, um, one of these factories. And the reason why Taiwan has historically been in this incredibly strong position, and it's so hard for China, for example, to try and compete with it, is not the tangible capital. The tangible capital is almost trivially easy to copy. It's the intangibles that make it hard. And I was talking to a semiconductor expert the other day, and we kind of agreed that actually, if you wanted to say what is the most valuable group of intangibles anywhere in the world, what's the kind of the what's what's the what's the biggest group of them? It's probably the semiconductor industry in Taiwan and those small number of semiconductor fabs there. And they're a perfect example that you had made before about a small country next to a big country that has to be more innovative in order to stay alive. They are. It's amazing how this keeps on cropping up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's the other part uh, where you mentioned before also design. Now they're trying to design chips with circuits as thin as a human hair or an atom or two or three rather than uh, the big clunky ones. If you remember when the first uh, uh, chips or, or devices were sent into space, they had huge computers that did less than a hand calculator do today. Uh, there are more, more functions from the, the old calculators than those huge computers that they sent into space. That's different. That's, those are the things, the designs that have brought down the size of the equipment that was done then. So then it's less important for the facilities than it is for the design. Exactly. And that's another story of intangible investment really changing our world kind of unrecognizably when we think back to the limited impact that computers made 40 years ago compared to now how they permeate everything. You mentioned as uh, productivity increasing, uh, something like flying cars. Uh, but I don't think that that's a good idea uh, because it gives 
rise to more accidents, deaths, and faster climate change uh, if you have a whole bunch of flying cars going around in a city? I don't know how you would control that. I think you're completely right. And here's another, I mean, you know, it, it comes back to another story that if, if flying cars are going to work, and I agree with you, that is a big if. I, I am not I'm not in the line to buy a flying car either. But let's suppose, let's think of the vision of flying cars in the minds of the kind of people who are very optimistic about them. What you need for it to work is not just the car itself. You need a ton of R&D to make this kind of cost effective. I mean, they exist at the moment, but no one would buy one. You need some incredibly sophisticated software and LIDAR sensors to stop exactly what you said, the fact that these flying cars are just all going to crash into one another. So you need a ton of invisible, intangible systems to make that work. And as you say, if these things aren't going to destroy the planet with huge amounts of carbon emissions, you also need a lot of research to make them, whether that's electric and powered by renewable energy. But again, all of this stuff, the things that would make this work are intangible. So, you know, I'm sure if, you'd, if, you'd, if, if all you'd wanted is a, something that looks like a car and can take off, that probably could have been designed in the 1960s. They might even have existed. But for actually, if you if you want them to be useful, it's all those systems, it's all that R&D, it's all those intangibles that you need to make them work. Do you remember a device or a vehicle that was popular 50 or so years ago? Not very popular, but started to look like it was going to trend. It was called the Amphic car. It was a oh. car that you could use as a boat. You could drive down to the shore <laughs> Uh, you push a button and it uh, closes up some vents and then you're with the propellers in the back, you would drive out onto a lake. I'm not sure it would work on an ocean because of the waves, but certainly a lake or a river uh, that I don't even know that it's still around. But that might also happen to something like a flying car unless all these other uh, intangibles were worked out. And that would be huge. But would it be worth the effort, the investment? Would you get a return on the investment? I think, I mean, what's interesting about all these things, you know, Amphicar is kind of a, the way you described it, it's kind of a combination of a car and a boat. It's sort of yeah. bringing together two ideas and seeing if it works. And you talked earlier that one of the concepts we talk about is synergies. That Sometimes when you combine these ideas in the right way, they're suddenly really valuable. And the Amphicar sounds like a bad example. They're combined in the wrong way. And so you get something that is a sort of, you know, we remember it as a funny story. Then if you take a different example, if we think about the the rollerboard suitcase, the wheelie suitcase, yes, another yes. example we talk about in the book, if you're an air traveler at all, this will have changed your life. There's nothing, you don't need a science lab to invent the rollerboard suitcase. You need a couple of things. You need the little wheel, the existing invention. You need the kind of rigid handle of the suitcase that allows you, that, that, that allows you to pull it. And you need a kind of in-depth understanding of kind of what the customer need is and of course the rollerboard suitcase was designed by a pilot someone who was having to go on a plane virtually every day and carry stuff around with him um and it's kind of an interesting example that something which you know you do not need to be a scientific genius you don't need to be steve jobs to come up with the um to come up with with the rollerboard suitcase but it's that magic combination combined with some real insight into what human beings actually need in some aspect of their life that can create a huge amount of value. In some ways, that's a great story. You come back to the environment, it means you can you can create a lot of value with maybe not not such large inputs. It's also a kind of troubling story because if you hit one of these kind of home runs, you will get very rich. And you know, as you said, there is an issue in society about, you know, we've got some people who are very, very rich and some people who are not so rich, and that divide seems to be growing. So 
there's good sides to this, there's bad sides to this. And the real challenge for us is how we make the most of the good things and minimize the bad things. Uh, you point out in your book that the idea that institutions are important to economic growth is now uncontroversial amongst uh, economists, except that today, most Western institutions are overly influenced by big money interests for their benefits and not for the benefit of the masses. And I've brought that up earlier in our conversation. And that's why uh, I think it's hard to get things uh, to move along for the benefit of uh, most people. And that's why, for instance, uh, you would think that if people are avoiding taxes or illegally uh, doing that, that you would increase the size of the tax collection agency to go after those people, except that Congress keeps on lowering the budget of the IRS here in the United States. I don't know what they're doing in Great Britain, but that seems to be antithetical. Uh, and that's a way to increase revenue without uh, imposing more laws on people to do it. And yet the institutions are not getting it done. So I think this is a super important issue you've identified. And I sometimes hear people call this state capacity, which is not about whether you're on the right or on the left, but just given whatever you want the government to do, does it have the capacity? Does it have the brains? Does it have the ability to actually do it? And I think you're seeing this gradual realization, not just among people who think there should be big government, but also among people who think there should be small government, that it's really important to make sure whatever size of the government, it is good at accomplishing what it wants to do. And I think, you know, what you said about kind of how this, uh, you know, vested interests, um, this comes back to that. So I've we've looked a lot in this book at intellectual property agencies like patent offices and the people who administer the copyright system. That's a big area where vested interests and rent seekers very aggressively get in. I used to work, I used to advise the UK government on intellectual property issues. And the people that you meet, the representatives of the rights holders, the copyright owners, I have never met as slick, as charming a bunch of lobbyists as those people. Mm. And, you know, when you meet someone like that, you know, that is a very well-paid person. They were lovely people. They were, they were, they were lovely in the way that really well-paid professional people are lovely. Now, the challenge is that if you don't resource your patent office well, then they get rings run around them by people who who have a case to make. And as you say, even if you are a kind of small government Republican or conservative, it's not in your interest to have whatever rules you do put in place manipulated by vested interests. And I think there is a kind of growing realization, at least in some in some parts of the political spectrum, that this is important. The tax example is a very good one as well. And what about Brexit in your area? Um, that has not turned out to be what it was thought to be. And I would lay the blame for that uh, bait and switch uh, on Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, because they were saying that the UK would save 350 uh, million pounds a week uh, if they went with Brexit. And then after it passed and uh, some of the reporters were asking them, well, uh, where is that savings? They said, well, we lied. Uh, they were not uh, equiv equivocating about that. They out and out said that they lied. Uh, so this was for the interests of whom? Uh, it certainly wasn't in the interests of the people, because as we're seeing now, there are shortages, there are possible brain drain 
uh, a reduction in the GDP of Great Britain as a result of this? So where are the benefits? So this is a really good question, and it's something I'm passionate about, this question of how can the UK reverse its economic decline? I think if you look at, if you look at Brexit, the, 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 way, the, the way it could be or could have been beneficial is, you know, the UK, when it was in the European Union, some of the rules that we made, some of the laws we made were made by the European Union. So a kind of classic example is on data protection. There's a set of rules on data protection called GDPR, which all businesses in the European Union have to follow. Businesses selling into the European Union have to follow it as well. And it imposes quite a lot of regulatory burden. A lot of people argue that that is not very efficient, doesn't lead to a lot of productivity in the economy. It's kind of driven very much by ethical concerns. And some of those ethical concerns are legitimate, but some of them may be maybe maybe too far. Now, the if the the promise of Brexit was that that would allow us in areas like that, which as we said, you know, these kind of rules and regulations are getting more and more important as the intangible economy grows, um, that Brexit would have allowed the UK to make smarter rules in those kind in those kind of areas. Now the, the proof of the pudding is very much in the eating. And one of the disappointing things is the UK is just about to make a piece of legislation on, we call it online harms, the kind of harms of online activities. And it looks like we are risking putting together a piece of legislation that is even worse than, the, than, than what the EU is putting together, that imposes a lot of burdens, that is kind of very fearful. And um, I guess what, what the, the moral of the story is if you make a political change to try and gain independence, then the onus is really on you to make sure you use that independence well. And if you don't, you suffer all the disbenefits of, of, of breaking away, but you don't get the advantages. But wasn't the big impetus uh, to uh, go with Brexit, to get rid of uh, uh, unrestrained immigration? Uh, because if you're a member of the European Union, you can cross borders without uh, any problems if you have been allowed into one of the EU nations. Uh, that was I, certainly, yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. That was certainly you, yeah, certainly the, the main reason that people voted for it? It was certainly one argument. I think that like anything in politics, there was a coalition of different interests. So you had some people who voted for Brexit because of because of immigration, because they thought the UK would be in a better position to control its own borders and they could put in place an immigration mix that they preferred. There were some people who even voted. So there were some people who even voted because they wanted to change the immigration mix and get more immigrants from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh and fewer from continental Europe. I think that's very unlikely to happen, but that was a motivation among some among some voters. Similarly, there were some voters who, as you said, were motivated by the idea that the UK could keep more of the financial contributions that it was making to the EU. And again, for some people, you know, there were deep cultural reasons in the same reason, in the same way that there'd been that 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 people voted for populist parties in the US or in 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 other European countries. So I think you've seen a real mass of different reasons. I think um, as you say, a lot of those have been disappointed or have not yet come to pass. Um, I think the real challenge for the UK now is to say, okay, well, we have some of these regulatory freedoms. How do we make the most of them? How do we make sure that we use those to act in the interests of the economy to raise wage growth? And that is really hard. That requires you to fight, as you say, all the vested interests that currently exist in politics. And that is kind of that's the hardest thing to do that there is to do in politics. And the Tories are um, 
not being very helpful uh, in what they're trying to do because they would seem to be like uh, the conservatives here in the United States to be more for the the rent seekers and the the big moneyed interests than they are for the people. Uh, For instance, I believe, and you could either agree or disagree with this statement, if there is to be long-term reasonable growth in the three to 4% range in GDP, you can't do it with the existing population, which is in part dying off. You need immigrants. The United States has become the country that it has because of constant immigration from the 1600s to, well, almost today. Uh, and if you, as Trump said, he wants to get to 4% a year. Well, where are you going to do that if you don't have the people? So I do you see. think that immigration is a help in the future if you want to grow? I think we know that. So, so we know in the UK, immigration has made a big contribution to the economy. You know, we have otherwise a kind of a, a pretty poor fertility rate in the UK. I think we, we need more immigration. I think the other thing that... Um, that that we need to come back to this demographic point is we need to make it more attractive for people who want to have children to have children. So at the moment, childcare costs in the UK are very high. At the moment, housing costs in the UK are very high. And, you know, if you want to have children, you need somewhere to put the children. Um, And um, so I would look at this and I would say, we think more people are good. We think more people are good if they come from abroad. We think more people are good if it's more people having more children. And how do we make sure that our politics maximizes that? One of the things you pointed out in the book is about how in Great Britain, there are all these green spaces around cities uh, and that it's great, but it's not being efficiently utilized because you could put a lot of housing in there. And then there's the problem of NIMBY. Uh, not in my backyard. And you talk about somebody who is pushing a movement called Yimby. Yes, in my backyard. So we have these competing interests. A NIMBY, of course, is probably more, uh, those people are more vociferous. But the point is, uh, this is another political situation. How are you going to solve the most important, one of the most important problems in both countries is the homelessness. What do you do? So I, th- I think, you know, first of all, it's this is this is a, a huge problem. And in some ways, it's an even bigger problem than we realize. And something we see both in the U.S. and in the U.K. is the problem of not having enough houses is not just homelessness or unaffordability of houses for people who kind of already live in cities. But it actually makes it harder for people who live outside of cities, often in places that oh. are doing less well economically, to move to cities. So, you know, at the moment, if you want to move to a really kind of living high tech town, whether that's in the Bay Area in California or like Oxford or Cambridge in England, you can just about afford to live there if you're a very highly skilled, highly educated person who's going to come and take some amazing job in a tech company. It's expensive for those people, but they can kind of afford to do it. And, you know, they come from the elite, broadly speaking. They are the kind of they that they are. They are one sliver of society. But if you want to move and work in a trade, if you want to work and be a teacher in a school, um, if you want to work in a less skilled job for those people, it's totally unaffordable and they have no choice but to stay where they are. And so when we see this massive divide opening up, whether it's in the US or in Britain, between these kind of you know metropolitan liberal cities and the kind of left behind heartland, 
part of the dynamic there is the unaffordability of housing, because once upon a time, people moved much more. And that means the polarization that I think people often assume just kind of comes from people's hearts. It doesn't just come from people's hearts. It's also economically driven. So I think if you can help address this housing issue, you not just cause an economic, you not just you don't just solve an economic problem, but you solve a political problem that's really ripping our countries apart to some extent. As you pointed out, there are some people that commute even in a large city two hours uh, in order to get from one side of the city to the other because the investment in a metropolitan transit system has not ever been made. Uh, now, places like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, they do have transit systems and not just in, in uh, trains, L's, uh, buses. Uh, they have a lot of commuting ability. But outside, when you start pushing people to the exurbs, that's when it gets really tough. Yeah, Is there so a solution I think, for that? I think, I guess the... the the, the, the big point here is in a world where ideas matter more, we said at the beginning, ideas tend to happen face to face. So being in a city becomes more economically advantageous in the economy now than it was 40 years ago or 100 years ago. So you kind of want a situation where people can live, can afford to live in cities if they want to and can afford to get around those cities. I think part of that is about making investments in um in 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 transport to the extent that you can afford to i think the other way of 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 doing this and this is something that has happened in london has happened in cities like singapore and like oslo and norway but could happen in more places is charging road users to use the busiest areas of 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 town so this is something that was very controversial when it was introduced in london 10 or more years ago you have to pay now if you want to drive an internal combustion vehicle into the center of town. But it's improved congestion. It's generated revenues that can be invested in transport. And it's meant that you kind of reduce the number of you, you, you get people using the transport that's generated. And I think, you know, this is always gradual. You know, if you wanted to do this in a big, sprawling, car-dominated like city like Houston, you can't do it overnight. But it's a way to provide revenues to reduce congestion and to, to, to do things in the interests of both the motorist and the commuter. But Great Britain has uh, historically had a great rail system uh, that went all over the place. Uh, that's not true here in the United States. We now have Amtrak, which is only limited to certain corridors, like the Washington, D.C. to Boston corridor is a prime example. There are some trains running in other areas of the country, but we have no bullet trains. Here we are, the most advanced country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, Japan uh, and uh, Europe, they have bullet trains that go 200 miles an hour. We haven't been able to politically uh, legislate to allow the funding to do it, or there is the political aspect of buying up people's land that don't want to sell that land. Uh, how can we possibly, from your standpoint, uh, get uh, up to the rest of the world's uh, advancing? I think that's a big challenge. I think my priority, first of all, will be to look at metro area transportation because that's what kind of builds these these economies which allows people to interact first of all but i think i agree the i get very excited when i see people trying to make the case for more high-speed rail particularly in denser areas of the us um i think you know this is a real um feels like investing in infrastructure of all these kind of things is really important it is and uh, we do have a, a start on a 
uh, on a high-speed rail between San Francisco and Los Angeles, which is the very heavily traveled corridor. It would be perfect, but yet it's run into all kinds of things, including huge budget increases along the way and people unwilling to sell their property, the things that I knew before. So, yeah, that, that becomes a big problem. Um, one of the good things about people working together is what you refer to as the agglomeration uh, effects, the link between city size and economy growth. There are three causes, matching effects, learning effects, and shared facilities. Being in a city makes it easier to match employees to jobs, customers to services, and partners, that's business, social, or romantic, with one another. And being online, like we are, uh, is nice. I mean, I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with you uh, all the way across the Atlantic unless we had this Zoom thing. But if we worked in the same city, it would be better if we were to be able to see each other once in a while in person. I think that's totally right. And this is why we see, you know, when you see what businesses have been doing as the pandemic, we hope begins to come to an end if you look at what kind of really some of the most um some of the most kind of high profile businesses have been doing they have been trying to find ways of getting people back face to face and i say this as someone you know i'm a manager i love working from home i love being at home with my family i love being at home with my cat it's very convenient but there are some interactions that you cannot get like that and um i you know i going into the office is is, is really beneficial. I mean, some of the lessons of flexible working, I think, have been really good, and I think it would be good to carry them forward. But I think a world where we, where everything remains virtual, we'll miss something, we'll miss out on a lot. Uh, well, we're, we're near the end of our time, and um, I wonder if there is uh, a last little bit that you would like to let us in on. So I think one thing that's really interesting here is how all of this stuff, how does all this talk of an intangible economy relate to one of the big challenges of our current age, which is climate change? Um, and I think the interest, I think the, there's a couple of interesting things here. I think when people think about climate change, understandably, they think of something physical. Yeah, obviously, carbon is a full physical entity. But also when we think of, you know, moving to a green economy, we think of, electric vehicles, we think of renewable energy plants, think of things that are quite physical. So there's a kind of legitimate question, okay, what does this mean for, what, what does this mean for the intangible world? And I think what's interesting here is if you look at what do we actually need to make kind of greener economy work, again, all of this stuff, the stuff that's really hard to get right is the intangible stuff. So the first example is research and development to create the technologies we need whether that is new cleaner nuclear technologies whether that's more efficient renewables solar panels and wind farms um, or whether that's new types of electric vehicles these are all really dependent on r&d investment but then if we go further and we look at well how do you actually implement all of this stuff again it's something where the intangibles arguably are much more difficult to get right than the tangibles so i'll give you an an example, you know, I live in Britain, so we have to heat our homes, unfortunately, because the weather's much worse than it is for you in California. But mm. um, most homes in the UK heated with gas, natural gas. We have a natural gas boiler and that heats water that, 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 that heats the home. The big movement here and in a lot of other countries is to move that heating to what's called a heat pump. 
And a heat pump is an electrical device. And obviously, the electrical device means you don't have to burn gas. You can run it using renewable energy. Now, it turns out that the hard thing to do is not to buy or install the heat pump, the tangible asset, the physical thing. It turns out what's hard to do is the design of your house, the design of the system to make sure that the air source heat pump can fit that, can work for the house, the system so that your air source heat pump can be maintained when it breaks, you have a supply chain of parts. All of that stuff is the intangibles. It's the kind of hidden wiring behind it. And um, I kind of speak from experience here because I put in an air source heat pump and those are the things that went wrong. Phys buying and installing the thing was kind of the easy part. And I think we see that time and time again, whether that's around systems to make sure that homes get insulated or appropriately um, climate conditioned, systems to make sure that people can charge their electric cars. That's as much about design as it is about install installation of things. The installation, again, is the easy part or the kind of revenue models that make uh, renewables work or that put design grids so that we can share the, the kind of electrical load. Um, so the challenges of fixing an intangible economy are really, are fixing the, getting the green economy to work are really intangible. But at the same time, I think the intangible economy holds a lot of hope for the environment because the great thing about intangible capital is it doesn't require you to spend a lot of money and emit a lot of carbon on concrete, on big machines. It's an economy very much based on the networks between people, on ideas, on kind of expressive content, the way people feel. So the intangible economy could hold the, hold the hope to a future that is more environmentally friendly and lower carbon emitting. So I'm an optimist from that point of view. Well, then we would need political will to get it done. And uh, I'm a little bit more cynical than you are on that. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, Stian, this has been a very enjoyable hour that we've spent together. And I want to thank you very much for being here. And who Stian is, that is Stian Westlake, who with his uh, co-author wrote Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. And uh, this has been a very good hour, and I want to thank you very much for being here, Stian. Thank you very much, Bob. Great to speak to you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.